As we begin this morning, allow me to ask you a question. You don't need to answer out loud, but uh, think about it in your own mind for just a moment. And it is this. How many sermons have you heard on the importance of love? Do you have any idea? If you're like me, you've probably lost count. That can be good or bad. It can be good if it has really driven home to us the priority of love in our lives, but it can be bad if our tendency is to tune out the message of love whenever we hear it again. I'm saying this to warn you because the message this morning is going to be about love because the text to which we come this morning is about love. It's found in 1 John chapter 4, so let's turn there together. 1 John chapter 4, and I invite you to follow along as I read verses 7 through 11, which will form our text of focus this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. A powerful text of Scripture with powerful words, even if it were in isolation. However, as you can see, these verses are not in isolation. They are in a context. They are in what we call the fourth chapter of 1 John, though when John wrote his letter there were not chapter divisions. Nonetheless, these words that John wrote were written in a flow of a letter. Therefore, it's very important that we connect this text with the section that precedes it. If you were here last week, then you remember that in verses 1 through 6, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, emphasizes the importance of discernment and truth as it relates to heresy. That is extremely important. It was extremely important in John's day. It is equally important in our day. But John was aware of our tendency. He understood how easy it is for those who want to be accurate with the truth to at the same time be harsh and intolerant with others in the family of God who have different views than them. That's not acceptable in the family of God. So John writes this section in which he returns to his familiar theme of love and its importance. Let me remind you that John was not always this way in his own life. When Jesus called him to be a disciple, John was a harsh man. It might surprise you to hear that, but he was indeed a harsh man. Jesus nicknamed John and his brother James Boanerges, literally sons of thunder, because they were such thunderous men. 
In fact, it's interesting to note that the only time John appears in the Gospels alone, Mark chapter 9, he's mad at someone. But Jesus transformed him into the apostle of love, and John spent the rest of his life and ministry emphasizing the very thing that is so close to the heart of our Lord, namely love. This letter called 1 John is filled with passages about love. You know that if you have been with us throughout this series. The few verses we just read, verses 7 through 11, open and close with the phrase, love one another. That phrase is right near the beginning of verse 7, and verse 11 ends with those three words, love one another. That phrase also occurs in chapter 3, verse 11, chapter 3, verse 23, chapter 4, verse 12, and in 2 John, verse 5. In addition, John records Jesus saying this exact same thing four times in his gospel record, the gospel of John. So it is safe to say that one of the reasons why John wrote this letter is to encourage us to love one another. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in Romans 13. He said the same, things in first, same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4. Love one another. The Apostle Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter 1.22. So John is not the only apostle to give this exhortation, but he is definitely the one who emphasized it the most. Because of his closeness to the Lord, this became one of his passions. With that in mind, let's see what the Holy Spirit guided him to say about this all-important aspect of the Christian life. Notice how John opens this paragraph. He says, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. John opens this verse with the exhortation to love one another. And then he proceeds to give us two reasons why we ought to love one another. Two reasons as motivation. But before we look at the motivations or the incentives, look at that opening exhortation again. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. When I read that statement, I found myself asking a question. What is behind that command? Or what are the implications of it? Here's the answer. And it is extremely important that we understand this point, beloved. The fact that John exhorts us to love one another, or you could even say it in a stronger way, the fact that the Holy Spirit exhorts us to love one another clearly indicates that we will have to work at it. And it won't be something that's automatic all the time. In other words, life in the family of God involves situations and involves people and it involves experiences that make it difficult to always love one another. If there were no difficult situations, if there were no difficult experiences, if there were no difficult people, then we would not need this exhortation. So, don't be surprised when you encounter a situation that tries your patience. Don't be surprised when another Christian disappoints you. 
Don't be surprised when another Christian hurts you. Don't be shocked when another Christian offends you. That kind of scenario is assumed in this exhortation. If it were always easy to love one another, if it were automatic, if we didn't have to work at it, then the Holy Spirit wouldn't need to give us this exhortation. So I'll say it again in very plain language. It's not always easy. Other believers in the family of God will make it difficult for you to obey this command. And listen to this, sometimes you are in that group of other believers. So am I. There are times when we make it difficult for each other to carry out this command in life. We are selfish. We are self-centered. We are self-absorbed. We are insensitive. We are harsh. We are ornery, we are cantankerous, we are argumentative, we are contentious, we are impatient, we are prideful. Should I stop? We are imperfect people who are still in the ongoing process of progressive sanctification. So we will hurt one another, we will disappoint one another, we will offend one another, even if we don't try to. You've heard the poem, to dwell there above with those that we love, that will be glory. To dwell here below with those that we know, well, that's another story. God's people are flawed. I don't say that as an excuse for wrong behavior in others. And certainly, none of us should excuse our own wrong behavior. It would be a serious mistake if you hear me saying that it's okay For you and me to be selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, insensitive, harsh, etc., etc., that's not okay. I'm not saying that's okay. But the fact of the matter is that there are very few people in the family of God who are really easy to love, and you are probably not one of them. Neither am I. That's why we are given this exhortation. It assumes, the way John opens this paragraph, assumes that we will have to work at it. It assumes that it won't always be easy. It assumes that it will take a choice on our part. It assumes that it's not automatic. Therefore, after giving us this exhortation to love one another, the command to love one another, John gives us encouragement or incentive to make the right choice. How does he do that? He does that in two ways. First of all, he says, for, let me explain further, or give incentive, for love is of God. See that? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Think about that statement for a moment. Love is of God. In other words, God is the source of love. Have you ever thought about the fact that God could have created us and our world without love? He could have. God could have chosen a completely different operating system for life in this world. He could have made us robots, He could have made us as machines. He could have made us in such a way that we would live life mechanically, without any feeling, without any emotion. 
but he chose to make us in his own image, which involves, among other things, us having intellect, emotion, and volition. Do you realize, it's, this is not something that most Christians take the time to think about, do you realize that there is love within the Godhead among the members of the Trinity? Most Christians don't think about that. They think that the members of the Trinity just function. You know, they just do their thing, whatever their thing is. They just do their deal. The Father does His deal. The Son does His. The Spirit does His. There is love within the Godhead among the members of the Trinity. John 3.35 and 5.20 both specifically state this fact. The members of the Godhead love each other. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. Any way you want to turn that, any way you want to make those connections, the members of the Godhead love each other, and we were created with the capacity to give love and experience love, which is part of the image of God in man. Now, I'm not meaning to suggest that love is merely emotional, but I am saying that emotion is part of it. Love isn't all emotion, but love doesn't lack emotion. This is what makes it difficult to define love. It's not accurate to define love as something that is merely emotional. But it would not be accurate to define love as something that is composed only of cold, sterile actions. You have had people do something for you, and it was very obvious that they didn't love you. They did it out of obligation. They did it mechanically. They did it in a cold way, a sterile way. You know that wasn't love. You, you don't have to even be told that. Love has an intellectual aspect to it. Love has an emotional aspect to it. And love has a volitional aspect to it. And love is a wonderful thing. Our society recognizes that love is an amazing thing, but our society does so many things wrong in its pursuit of love. Love is looked for and sought for in many wrong places and in many wrong ways, but that doesn't change the fact that our world even recognizes how important love is and how meaningless life would be without love. And here in verse 7, we are told God is the source of love. Love is of God. Even people who don't know God are sometimes granted the privilege of experiencing love on a human level, and that is a gift from God whether they realize it or not. It's similar to the air that we breathe. Most people do not thank God for the air that they breathe. Most people in our world do not thank God for the food they partake of. But those things are a gift of God whether they're recognized or not. Love is the same way. God is the source of love. When we experience love in life, in whatever context, whether that's love within family members or love among friends, love within the family of God, whatever the, the relationships are, when we experience love in life, that is a gift from God because He is the ultimate source of love. That's one of the reasons John gives us as to why we should love one another. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. God is the source. He has given us this gift, and we should share it. But John doesn't stop there. 
The second reason John gives us here in verse 7 for why we ought to love one another is at the end of the verse where he says, Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This is something that John has already, already stated earlier in the letter. One of the marks of a true Christian, a true child of God, is love for the people of God. When God saves us, He transforms our hearts to give us a love for His people. Go back just one chapter to chapter 3, verse 14, where he says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. John says this in chapter 3, verse 14, because this is a marker of those who truly belong to God and have eternal life. Now, it's not the only marker, because John mentions at least two others right here in this letter. You remember the three tests John sets forth of eternal life. He also mentions the test of truth and the test of righteousness or obedience. So you can't isolate this one and say, well, I know this loving person who is an atheist, and according to this verse, he must have eternal life. No, love is a marker. Love is an indicator. Love is a test of genuine salvation, but it isn't the only test the Holy Spirit guides John to give us in this letter. Truth and righteousness are also delineated by the Holy Spirit in this letter as markers or indicators of genuine salvation, but love is also one of the tests set forth by the Holy Spirit. When we see that we love the people of God with all their faults, with all their flaws, that is an indication of God's saving grace in our lives because unbelievers don't naturally love the people of God. There are unbelievers who love a Christian or two in their lives. But this verse is talking about loving all the family of God, loving the people of God. That is not natural. That is not something that's natural. That is something accomplished in our lives at salvation, which is why John can make this statement here in chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Romans 5.5 5 says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The resident Holy Spirit of God gives us a love for God and a love for the people of God that is not natural and it is not from ourselves. That's what gives us confidence that we have been born of God and have passed from death to life. This non-natural love for the people of God is a sign of the saving grace of God in our lives. So that's why John says what he does in our text over in chapter 4, verse 7. He is basically saying this, listen, since God has worked this grace in our hearts to love his people, we ought to make sure we do it. We ought to act consistently with our new nature we ought to act consistently with our new heart. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But John doesn't stop there. Back to our text in chapter 4. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, he who does not love, he turns the coin over on the negative side, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The first part of this verse is also a rephrased 
repetition of what John has written earlier in his letter. If you go back to chapter 3 again, we looked at verse 14. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. It says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John sums that up in chapter 4, verse 8 by saying, He who does not love does not know God. Chapter 3 says it a different way. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What does John mean by this statement here in chapter 3? He is obviously talking about someone whose life is characterized by murder, not anyone who has ever committed this horrible sin. He is not merely talking about someone who has murdered. He is talking about someone who is a murderer because his heart is filled with hate. If you have murderous hatred in your heart, but you don't carry it out because you don't want to suffer the consequences, then you're still a murderer in your heart. Your heart condition is no different. Who you are as a person is still the same because the only difference is you haven't been willing to carry out what you want to do. You're still a murderer in your heart. You're still a murderer in your character. And John doesn't hesitate to say that a person like that who has this murderous hatred in his heart doesn't have eternal life abiding in him. That's the background to his statement in chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, He who does not love does not know God. And then, don't miss this, John adds his monumental statement at the end of chapter 4, verse 8. He says, For God is love. Beloved, that is such an epical statement. This is where my limited vocabulary frustrates me. Rarely in Scripture do you find such a summary statement about the character of God. God is so immense that there's a sense in which He is beyond description. He is infinite. We are finite. Yet this verse says... John does not hesitate to say, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in summary fashion, God is love. His love is infinite. His love is indescribable. His love is immeasurable. This verse doesn't merely say that God loves. Notice that. It doesn't say, he who does not love does not know God, for God loves. That's not what it says. It doesn't merely say that God loves. It says God is love. That's his character. That's his nature. That's who he is. You could even say it this way. That's what he is. This truth is evidence for the Trinity, as I alluded to earlier, because if God is love, that love must be shared. And it is shared in the Godhead. It is shared within the triune Godhead. Therefore, John's point is obvious here in verse 8. Since God is love, since this is who He is, since this is His character, this is His nature, those of us who are His children should mimic His character by loving one another. His character should be displayed in our lives. His character should come out in our lives. His nature should be seen in us. God is love. Beloved, just because there are people who distort that statement, and there are, there are plenty of people who distort that statement, use it wrongly, but just because there are people who distort that statement by defining God as all love and no holiness, 
or all love and no justice, all love and no righteousness, just because there are people who do that, don't let that rob you of the thrill of this statement from the Holy Spirit. God is love. It's very easy for us to downplay or minimize this statement because there are so many people who distort it. You've heard that, I've heard that. You've seen it in society. People say, God is love, and they'll use that to say, well, therefore it's wrong if you try to uh, take a stand against uh, homosexuality because God is love. Or they'll misuse this verse, this phrase, in a variety of ways. But just because people misuse it, don't let error steal this reality away from you. God is love. It's obvious from reading through this letter that John was very concerned about truth. I mean, that's what he just said in verses 1 through 6. He's very concerned about truth. It's also very, very obvious that from reading through this letter that John was concerned about righteousness. He says the person who doesn't obey the Lord is, is, and claims to be a believer is a liar. So he's very concerned about righteousness. He's very concerned about obedience. Very concerned about holiness. But at the same time, he doesn't hesitate to say, God is love. I am emphasizing this point because there are many Christians who are concerned about truth and are concerned about holiness, but they seem to think it's a weakness to emphasize the importance of love. John didn't have that hesitancy. He was concerned about holiness, concerned about truth, concerned about righteousness, but he didn't hesitate to say God is love. And this isn't the only place in his letter where he says it. Then he adds verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through God has shown his love for us in a myriad of ways. Acts 14, 17 says, He did good, gave us rain from heaven, and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. In other words, he is saying there, uh, Acts 14 is saying that God shows his love by giving rain, by pro- providing food for people. Life and breath are a gift from God, as I said earlier. They are an expression of his love. His love is seen in a number of ways, but this verse is saying the supreme display of God's love is seen in the sending of his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And beloved, think about this. We will never know or realize, at least this side of eternity, and I don't know if eternity will grant us this privilege, but we will never know or realize this side of eternity what it cost the Father to send His precious Son to this earth. We'll never know or realize here in this life. There's no way. And that's what makes the sacrifice even more amazing. I mean, it's one thing to make a sacrifice that is understood. It's one thing to make a sacrifice that is appreciated. It's one thing to make a sacrifice that is realized by others. But the ultimate sacrifice is one that you know will not be understood or appreciated or realized. Now maybe you can relate to this in a smaller way in your own life because maybe you can think back to a time where you gave something to someone and you, when you gave it, 
you were aware of the fact that there is no way this other person would realize, comprehend, uh, appreciate what it cost you. But you gave it anyway because it was in your heart to do that. But you knew all along there's no way this other person could grasp the magnitude of the sacrifice of of what you gave or why you gave. That was the kind of sacrifice the Father gave us. He gave us something that cost more than we will ever realize in this life. Yet he was still willing to give it. This verse says he gave so that we might live. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. Jesus was sent by the Father to give us abundant life in this life and eternal life in the next life. And the cost was beyond normal human comprehension. That's why John adds the next verse, verse 10. He says, in this is love. This is love. Let me give you a definition of love. He says, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John reminds us of the crowning exhibit of love. It was when God sent Jesus. Now, John could have stopped there. It's when God sent Jesus to the world. But that's not the way he says it. Notice how he says it. When God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. If Jesus as our propitiation for our sins, is the most supreme example of love ever, and it is, then we better understand what this word propitiation means. What does this word mean? If this is the crowning exhibit of love, what does it mean? First, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. If you are familiar with Greek mythology or pagan religion, then you know that propitiation in those contexts is the averting of the anger of a mean, whimsical God by offering some kind of sacrifice. In other words, you offer something because you have this mean, whimsical God and you're hoping that it will avert His anger, somehow pacify Him. That is not biblical propitiation. Dr. John Walbert says this, quote, The two facts that place propitiation in the Bible above the pagan concepts in extra-biblical literature are, first of all, that it is not the question of satisfying a vengeful God, but satisfying a God who is just, righteous, and holy in all his dealing. Second, such a God, while on the one hand demanding complete satisfaction of his righteousness, is the same God who, because of his love for lost mankind, sent his Son to be that propitiation. End quote. In other words, propitiation is the satisfaction of anger. It is that. We don't need to back away from that just because people say that that's crass Christianity. Propitiation is the satisfaction of anger. But it is the wrath of a just, righteous, holy God who is not mean, who is not whimsical, but rather is so loving that he himself provided the propitiation. A second thing that propitiation doesn't mean is expiation. Now, I know I'm getting a little technical here, but I'm doing so for a reason. These are concepts that people often confuse or set forth that are inaccurate. Propitiation doesn't mean expiation. Expiation means only half 
of what propitiation means. Expiation has sin as its focus, and it means the covering, the putting away, or rubbing out of sin. Propitiation means that, but more, much more. Propitiation also means satisfying the righteous wrath of God. And Romans 3.25 makes sure to tell us that it was God Himself who satisfied His own righteous wrath. Propitiation is the work of God Himself. It's not man coming up with some kind of sacrifice to to, uh, hopefully satisfy God. It is God Himself providing His own sacrifice to avert His holy righteous wrath. Packer says this, and I quote, In paganism, man propitiates his gods, and religion becomes a form of commercialism and indeed bribery. In Christianity, however, God propitiates his wrath by his own action. He set forth Jesus Christ, says Paul in Romans 3, to be a propitiation. He sent his son, says John, to be the propitiation for our sins. It was not man to whom God was hostile who took the initiative to make God friendly, nor was it Jesus Christ, the eternal son, who took the initiative to turn his father's wrath against us into love. The idea that the kind son changed the mind of his unkind father by offering himself in place of sinful man is no part of the gospel message. It is a sub-Christian, indeed an anti-Christian idea, for it denies the unity of will in the father and the son, and so in reality falls back into polytheism, asking us to believe in two different gods. He concludes with this statement, but the Bible rules this out absolutely by insisting that it was God himself who took the initiative in quenching his own wrath against those whom, despite their ill desert, he loved. End quote. Propitiation, this amazing display of the love of God, this crowning exhibit of the love of God, propitiation is the work of God himself. There's no way, beloved, we could do anything to avert the wrath of God toward us. There's no way we ourselves could do anything about that. God himself did it for us when in love he, to quote John here in this verse, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Rather than propitiation being a coarse or crude or crass concept, as some people wrongly assume and wrongly accuse, it actually, according to this verse, defines and demonstrates the amazing love of God for us. In fact, Packer calls it the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the fact that the Father allowed us to escape holy wrath because in love, Jesus became our substitute. That is the greatest example of love there has ever been in all of history and ever will be. I hope you haven't heard it so often that it has become commonplace to you. I hope you haven't heard it so often that it has become mundane to you. May the Spirit of God stir our hearts to see in a fresh way that when the Father was willing to allow us to escape holy wrath because of Jesus as our substitute, That is the quintessential display of love in history. That is it. God chose to do that for us. 
We didn't ask Him to do it. Which is why John says here in this verse, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. He is the one who took the initiative. He is the one who made the decision. We didn't love Him. We walked away from Him. We deserted Him. As the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to his own way. We've done our own thing. We all walked away from him. We deserted him. We turned our backs on him. Worse, we shook our fists in his face. We spit in his face. It wasn't our love for him that prompted him to send his son. Verse 10 says it was his love for us that prompted him to send his son. So it goes without saying that this was a love that was unconditional. This was a love that was undeserved. This was a love that was unearned. It was a love that was volitional in the sense that God did not make his choice based on whether or not we would reciprocate. He did not make his choice based on whether or not we would appreciate it. He did not make his choice based on whether or not we would value it. We would understand it. No, that was not the basis of his choice. God's choice was based on his determination to love us. His love for us. That's God's example of love. And it forms the basis for John's closing statement. Notice what he says in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, in the way he just described in verse 10, If God so loved us, if He loved us in this manner by sending His Son to be a propitiation for our sins, knowing we would never understand what the cost was, we would never fully appreciate, never fully value, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's love is our example. He loved us when we didn't deserve it. In fact, He loved us when we deserved the opposite. His love wasn't based on whether or not we were worthy. It was based on His choice to shower love upon us despite what we deserved. And John says here, the Holy Spirit says here, Beloved, that's the way we should love one another. We don't look at one another and decide if the other person is worthy of us loving him or her. We don't base it on how he treats us or how she treats us. We love others because as the people of God, we are called to love one another in the way that God has loved us. 1 Timothy 1.5 says this, But the goal of our instruction is love. Isn't that an interesting statement? He doesn't say the goal of our instruction is knowledge. The goal of our instruction is information. No, the goal of our instruction is love. That sums it up well. The reason why we teach truth, the reason why we impart truth to people is to get God's people to love. We are to love God and we are to love one another. And if we don't, and if we don't in such a way that it comes out in our actions then, beloved, we are a contradiction. Hear that. It's a contradiction. 
to call yourself a Christian and not love. That's a contradiction. So how are you doing? Did someone come to your mind in this message? I don't mean, did you think of someone who needs to be more loving? That's easy to think that way. Oh, I hope, you know, I hope Tommy's hearing this, you know. I hope Bobby's here. I hope Sherry is really, you know. I don't mean that. I mean, did you think of someone that is difficult for you to love? Or maybe it was more than just one person. Maybe you thought of several. You see, this is where, this is where the rubber meets the road in your Christianity. The Holy Spirit is clear that we are to love one another. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's bow together in closing. In this passage we just considered, John mentioned the concept of knowing God. So I ask you in closing this morning, do you know him? Please understand, I didn't ask if you know about him, if you know of him. Do you know him? Do you know God personally, genuinely? Do you know his son, Jesus Christ, personally, as your own Lord and Savior? If you do not, then that's the main thing you need to hear this morning. As important as love is, before you even get to that, you need to hear this that the, the most important issue in your life is knowing God, knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. Because once you do know Him, then you have the strength, the motivation, the incentive to love. But you must start by knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. So look at your life. And ask yourself that question honestly. Do I know him? Do I have a relationship with him? If you don't, or if you have doubts in your mind, settle the issue now, this very moment, right there where you are seated. God sees your heart. You don't have to say anything out loud. He knows what you're thinking. And if in your heart you desire to know him, if in your heart you desire to know Jesus Christ, then just express that to the Lord. Lord, I want to know you. I, I, I'm not even sure what this, this means, but my heart has been stirred. I want to know you. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. I want a relationship with you. Forgive me. Change me. Make me who you want me to be. Pray along those lines if the Spirit of God has stirred your heart. And if you are a child of God, you do, you're, you're confident you know the Lord, then hear his message. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Father, what a, what a powerful text. You know the own, my own frustration in my mind, just feeling like I so inadequately described, explained it, but my prayer is that your spirit would work through those limitations, those human limitations, to really help us as your people to hear what you have said in this rich text, to see what you have said, to grab hold of that, that monumental statement, God is love, and to work out the implications in our own lives. 
Thank you that you sent your son, that he was born of a virgin, born in a little village of Bethlehem, only acknowledged by lowly shepherds. But your love was so monumental that you sent him to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy your own righteous wrath so that we never have to face it. What love, what wondrous love is this. And we pray for anyone in our midst who does not know that love personally because he or she does not know your son, the Lord Jesus, personally. May your Holy Spirit do his work of conviction so that this would be the day, this special day, when he or she comes to know you, comes to be in your family through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.